Matthew 21. Just want to encourage you after church to uh, get a chance to take a look at those sign-up sheets. Once again, potluck coming up here in two weeks. Uh, home fellowship groups are starting up this week for some. I think as Renee mentioned, just want to reiterate, we got one over in Holgate at James Travis's house. Pastor Renee will be teaching that. Signet over at the Kaiser's house. That's on Tuesdays. I'll be teaching that one. Milton Center is over at Judith Scott's house. Pastor Rich will be teaching. We've got a couple in Deschler, one at the Winsinger's house with Russ teaching. One at Donamine's house, uh, I'll be teaching that. And one over here in Hamler at Rosebrock's house that uh, Jason Phillips and Matt Christie will be double-teaming that one. So check out the sheets back there. The vision comes from Acts 20 of going house to house just to encourage and share the gospel. And the third year we've done it, and I hope you prayerfully consider getting involved with that. And real quick, too, two weeks from today, uh, after the 10 o'clock service, before the Thanksgiving potluck starts, Pastor Rich is going to lead up a time of prayer for anybody that wants to join after the 10 o'clock service just for the upcoming election, just for the nation, etc. So if that's something you want to do, two weeks here, Sunday morning after the 10 o'clock service as well. I wanted to let you know about that. All right, Matthew 21 this morning. Let's do the right thing. Let's pray, and we'll get started. Lord, as always, you teach, we listen. Let your spirit guide and direct and give us ears to hear, and let it be about you and not about us, Lord. And not only in here, but also for all the kids in the back classrooms, Lord. Thank you in your name. Amen. All right, if you weren't with us last week, Matthew 21 starts the final week of the life of Jesus. It is the triumphant entry. We call it Palm Sunday. This is where Jesus has made clear to the nation of Israel, who he is, fulfilling prophecies. He is the king. They're actually crying out, Hosanna, save us. We want you to be our king, Jesus. But the problem was, one week later, they're yelling, crucify him. Because why? They wanted him to be their king, but they wanted a king for the government. Get rid of Rome. Get Rome off our back. Jesus said, no, I'm here to be the suffering savior and die for your sins. They said, we don't want that, so therefore crucify you. So what we have going on here this last week of Jesus' life is his final arguments and discussions with the Pharisees, Sadducees, high priests, his condemnation of their false religion, and I say false religion, I mean of their hypocrisy of who they are, and then he does a couple chapters on end times. He's kind of cleaning house, if you will, and that was symbolic of him cleansing out the temple last week, and plus the fig tree withering in chapter 21. Fig tree represents Israel, and their faith withered. And we talked about how that's also a picture of us. Are we alive and strong in our walk with Christ? Is our, our faith in Christ starting to falter wither? Because we're not planted where we're supposed to be and spiritually growing in the Lord. So with that being said, they're trying to trip Jesus up here in verses 23 through 27. And this is a continual theme. We saw it last week in verse 23. They're confronting him while they're teaching. If you look in chapter 22, verse 15, they're trying to entangle him in their words. Same chapter, verse 23, they're coming and trying to debate him on the resurrection. And then in verse 36, excuse me, verse 34 of chapter 23, they gather together, they're trying to test him. Jesus defeats every one of these questions, and he turns the tables back on them and says, No, guys, I know who I am. I am the Messiah. But you, where are you at in your walk with me? Who am I to you? And that's what we talked about last week is who is Jesus to you? And if you weren't with us Wednesday, we started our new book, the book of Hebrews. And we talked about how the first couple of chapters of Hebrews are, who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? And that's what Jesus is going to talk about here today. So with that being said, jump into verse 28. But what do you think? Matthew 21, verse 28. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and like, said likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. 
Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Three parables this morning. Remember, a parable means it's a hidden message. When you read through a parable, there's just the basic reading that you get. Okay, I get the story. There's a dad that said, son, I want you to work. And he said, well, I won't, but then he did. And there's another son that said, I will, but he won't. And the basic meaning is obedience. But then there's a deeper spiritual message. The key word in this parable here is going to be obedience. Which son obeyed? The one that actually did it. Yeah, but well, the one son said he would, but then he didn't. The other one said he wouldn't, but he did. So which one is the father pleased with? The one who obeyed. Israel said, we will follow you, Lord. And never did. But then there's these what? Verse 32, tax collectors and harlots who said, we don't want to follow you, Lord. But at the end said, we did. It's about how you finish. How often have we started out rough? How many of you here this morning lost the first few decades of your life? And then you decided to what? Finish well. You may have started out as the harlot. You may have started out as the tax collector. But then you said, no, I want to obey. Maybe in your teens or your 20s, someone come tried to tell you the truth and you rejected that. But now you believe you're finishing well. Amen. It's about how you finish. You decided to be obedient. And the next thing about obedience is actually doing it. All of you are here this morning. Some of you may even underline some verses. You mark, you may even take a note or two before you fall asleep. But the point is, you're here this morning, and I hope right now you're listening. But then you're obedient to say, I want to do it. You know, a couple weeks ago, we had Pastor Rich Day come out. Jonathan and Heidi led up those revival services, and they invited Rich Day. And one of the points that he talked about was, when you say you understand, when you say you hear the word of God, obedience needs to follow. Because if you really get it, if you really say, Lord, I hear what you're asking me to do, I understand, and then you don't do it, yeah, then you really didn't hear and understand. Because why would we want to disobey what God said? And this is the theme what Jesus said. A couple passages in Luke 8 and Luke 11, where Jesus says, Blessed are those that hear my words and do them. Then in Luke 11, he said, Blessed are those that hear my words and keep them. Hear and do. Hear and keep. Not just give us a verbal sure, but actually doing it. I heard a pastor give an analogy with this, and I absolutely loved it. He talked about how what would happen if you'd go to his daughter and say to her, I want you to go clean your room. He asks her in the morning to go clean her room. He comes back in the evening, and he notices that she has not done a single thing in her room. Now, she said she would. So he comes to his daughter and says, I asked you to clean your room. You didn't. Oh, Dad, I heard you. I thought what you said was so important. I took your words, clean your room, and I typed it out, and I put it on my mirror so I'll see it every day. I even made up t-shirts that said, clean your room. I made a bumper sticker. I've actually invited all my friends over, and we're going to study your words tonight on what it means to clean your room. But yet, never do it. How often do we do that as believers? Oh, I get it. I get it. I'm supposed to love everybody. So I got a sticker that says love, or I'm going to mark the verse, but I'm going to go to work and hate my coworkers. I understand all the Greek words for love. I hear it, but I don't do it. And what Jesus is trying to say here in this parable is hear and do. The first son might have initially said no, but then he went and did it. That's what the Lord is looking for, is that obedience. Israel started out good, ended in disobedience. We started out as harlots, tax collectors, started out bad, but we ended in obedience. Romans 6 says that we were slaves to sin, but then we obeyed. We started out rough, but then we obeyed. 
That's what Israel needs to hear. That's what we need to hear. So we have to stop after the first parable now and say, are we hearing this? Are we obeying? Is there something the Lord has laid in your life right now that you hear them, you understand it, but the obedience isn't there? As a believer, we want to hear and obey. What about the next parable, verse 33? Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers, and it went to a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they may receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Seize his inheritance. So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Once again, a parable, hidden message. We get the initial idea of what he's talking about. There's the vineyard, and so therefore he's ready to receive the fruit of it. He sends servants, they're rejected, sends his son, he's killed. Now, what's the spiritual meaning of this? Obviously, it's a picture of Israel. What you see here, the landowner is God the Father. The vineyard is Israel. She's protected by the Lord. Fruit is expected from her. Look at verse 33. Set a hedge around her, dug a wine press, built a tower. God protected Israel. And now he sends the prophets to check in on her. Well, the prophets are killed. The prophets are rejected. So now he sends his son, Jesus. And Jesus is going to be killed and rejected. That's what Jesus is saying. God expected fruit from you. God wanted fruit from you. He rejected it. And so now punishment is coming. Verse 41. He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. Who are the other vine dressers? Us. Gentiles. We're not Jews. So salvation comes to us. Now note a couple things about this. First off, note God's nature. He sends more servants, more prophets, and eventually sends his son. He doesn't send armies and fire of judgment right away. Because he doesn't want to destroy these people. He wants to work with them. Judgment eventually comes. But at first, he's like, no, that's not what I want to do. Same thing happens to us. We live in such a time of grace right now. Gosh, guys, you've watched the evening news. Our world deserves to be judged. And it will be judged. That's the book of Revelation. But right now, the Lord is patient and long-suffering. And there's kindness to say, turn to me. Turn to me. Love. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Eventually judgment will come. Verse 41. What else can we learn from this? First point I see is God wants fruit. That's what he desires. Why did he plant a vineyard? He planted a vineyard to get the fruit out of it. Okay. We're planted. We talked about this last week. We're planted to be believers in the Lord because God wants fruit from us. He wants us to live for him and not us. This is a difficult thing. But what I keep realizing is how often do we live for us? It's all about us. It's what we please us with. I don't know how many times I've run into people over the years that talk about how they just want to be happy. Okay, problem with happiness is happiness is so temporary. Christmas is happy. Days off from work are happy. Birthdays are happy. And guess what? The next day it's gone. Happiness is very subjective to what you're going through. God seeks us out to have joy. Joy is just regardless of the circumstances. That's what the Lord wants. And I don't know how many people I see living for their own happiness. 
And I hear comments like this. I just want to be happy. Why can't I be happy? Or, you know what? I've lived for everybody else for so many years. I'm now going to live for myself. No. You're planted to be a vineyard for the Lord. Every action you do is to produce fruit for the Lord and to glorify Him. And if you spend all your time and energy trying to make yourself happy and fulfill yourself, it will be a never-ending process. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Ecclesiastes and read Solomon's testimony of a man that tried to fill himself with every happiness and still walked away lacking. Some of you may have been here now for decades, and you may have been saying, I've been trying to live for myself and make me happy. Well, you know what? Maybe you need to step back and say, what does the Lord want? The Lord wants us to glorify Him, created for works, workmanship for Him, to glorify Him through producing fruit. That's where joy and peace and happiness come from, is through Him. He expects fruit. Number two, what does He ask of it? He expects effort to do it. It takes work. I don't know how many times I run into believers that they get saved, they get to a place morally where they're doing good, they get to a place where their marriage is doing okay, their family's doing okay, and they just decide to flatline there for the rest of their lives. They just plateau. They're not going to do anything morally stupid. They're not going to do anything spiritually dumb. But they just kind of stay right here. Where the Lord is saying, no, there's effort that's expected of this, and I want you to grow and go deeper in us. Go deeper in Christ. The question is, do we want to do it? Why do we not want to do it? Life is pretty busy. So what does God constantly do? He constantly reminds us. What does he do right here? He sent servants after servants, prophets after prophets. God will constantly remind you that he wants more from you. Not because you have to. Not because he's forcing you. Because he says, this is for your good. I want more of you. Because the more that you have of me, the less of you. Oh, man. Then all of a sudden the world just grows strangely dim. What a freeing experience that is when you're freed from this world to say, Lord, I just live for you. So how does God remind you? Through the constant worship songs I hope you listen to, through the teachings, through the other body of Christ. You hear these teachings. He's reminding you. What are you going to do with it? How often do we hear it, go home, and live our life the same way? God says it needs to change. So how does it need to change? Verse 42. Jesus said to him, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Israel, you're losing this privilege, and it's now going to go to the Gentiles. Verse 44. And whoever falls in the stone will be broken, but whoever it falls will grind him to power. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables... They perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Boy, isn't that the truth? Verse 45, they get it. They're talking about us. So what are we going to do? Verse 46, we're going to get angry. Nothing's changed, has it? You go present truth to people, what's the general reaction? Angry. How dare you? How dare you say this about me? I'm sure you're not perfect. Or you're going to pick on me? You're going to tell me what I'm doing wrong? Have you looked at everybody else that attends that church out there? Yeah, but we're not talking about them. We're talking about you right here, right now. It's anger. Why is it anger? Because the flashlight shone in the darkness and we saw things we didn't want to see. So therefore, if I get angry about it and I can deflect it off me, that's exactly what's going on here. They perceived they were talking about them. Yeah, but I don't want to hear it. What can we learn from this? Verse 42. Your foundation has to be Christ. Now you know this, but do you really know it? Your foundation has to be Christ. He has to be the stone in your life. Because if you're truly living for something else other than Christ, what do you think the end game result of that is? I say this all the time. 
How sad if our life is just get up, go to work, come home. Get up, go to work, come home. If there's no eternity in our life, if there's no ministry in our life, if there's no service. No, it has to be the foundation of Christ. That's who we live for. And when you live for Him, you may have to put dreams and ambitions and desires to the side because the Lord is saying, that's not good for you. Trust me as the foundation of your life. What else do we see? Verse 43, He desires fruit. This is that ongoing theme. He desires our lives to be different, that people see something in us. We are not just supposed to be one of the six billion people living in this world. We're supposed to be a walking witness and testimony in all that we do and all that we say. We're supposed to be doing fruit. And the last thing of this you see in verse 44, there has to be a brokenness in your life. Catch verse 44. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but whoever it falls it will grind into pieces. You've you got to choose one of the two. You either fall on Jesus, the stone, and are broken in a good way. I'm broken of who I am. I'm broken because of my sin, and I'm broken, and I come to Christ and say, put me back together again. Or the stone falls on you and breaks you in judgment. Guys, it is easier to fall on the stone than it is to have the stone fall on you. I can tell you from personal experience, when I submit and repent and humble myself and say, Lord, I need to be broken, I fall on the stone of Christ, it goes so much better than me and my pride saying no. And then eventually the stone falls on me. We stopped after the first parable and said, are you putting Christ first? Are you making sure that you're obeying? Not just saying I'll do it, but actually doing it. Let's end at the second parable here and say real quick, who's controlling your life? Who's your foundation? Do you need to fall on the stone and be broken to be reminded, Lord, it has to be you and all that I do and say? Because you're spending so much time and energy trying to fulfill you? Because if not, the stone will fall on you. And Jesus says, no, come to me. Which takes us then to our last parable, verse 1 of chapter 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So those servants went out, Onto the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into utter darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. heard a great teaching a couple years ago at a pastor's conference by a man the name of Jay McCarl. And actually, we're going to put that on the Facebook page here uh, after the service that I hope you can get on there and listen to it because he had just an amazing understanding of New Testament wedding traditions. Because when you read through this, you have to understand what they used to do 2,000 years ago. (laughs) Completely different than how we look at weddings now. I've done a lot of weddings in the 17 years that I've been out here. And one of the things I always remind the bride and groom is the wedding is not about you. It's about you standing up before the Lord to say that you want to publicly say that you want to unite each other as one and put Christ as the foundation of your life and your marriage. The reason people are invited is to be accountable, is to be encouraging and supportive. And the reason the pastor is here is to represent Christ. 
The pastor is representing the Lord to say, you are coming together as one in Christ Jesus. And I always tell them, the wedding only lasts 15, 20 minutes. So don't stress about it. Don't spend a lot of money on it. Don't go crazy about it. It's not worth it. Just have the wedding here. It's free. We'll even split the chairs for you. You just got to show up. Because it's not about us. But now the problem is we live in a society today where it comes to weddings, what is it? Oh my, it's all about the bride. I sometimes see these articles and what the average cost of a wedding is. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. If that's the average cost, I know how averages work. The weddings that we do here that cost very little, that means somebody's spending way too much time, energy, and money on a wedding. It's not worth it. It's not. And what you see back here during Bible times, though, it's so different. It's hard for us to relate to what this is. So I I encourage you after this uh, service here, hopefully it's on this afternoon, get online and listen to that message, and we'll give you a much deeper explanation of what a New Testament wedding during the time of Jesus looks like. Because it sounds very strange. Because we get the parable here. There is the king who's arranging a marriage for his son, and, and the king kind of has all the power. He's kind of determining when the wedding's going to be. He's kind of asking for people to come. But that's the way it was back then. See, I always tell this every time I do a wedding. The person that has the least responsibility, the person that no one cares about the most at a wedding, is the father of the bride. Excuse me, father of the groom. Excuse me, I screwed up. Take two. The person that no one cares about the most, the person that has the least responsibility, is the father of the groom. No one cares about him. Father of the bride, you get to give the daughter away. Mother of the bride, you get to be the first one to stand. The the mother of the groom, you get to come up and light candles. What does the father of the groom get to do? He gets to pay for it. That's what he gets to do. (laughs) He He doesn't even get to escort his wife in. He normally just has to fall behind and he just comes and sit. No one cares about him. Here in Bible times, though, the father of the groom was the most important person. He actually determined when the wedding was going to take place. Now, this does not mean that all of a sudden he just says, son, you're getting married. There's a whole lot of background to this that I'm not able to get into because, once again, this Jay McCarl does a great job with it. But basically, there's been this whole betrothal process. There's been a whole background set up going. What would happen is the son would go build a house for his bride. Think this through. John 14, I go and prepare a house for you, Jesus said. Right, And so then when it was time, the father would say, the house is done, everything is ready, son, go get your bride. Which is a picture of God the father saying, Jesus Christ, son, go get your bride, the church. There's all the symbolism that goes with it. And so the father of the groom had this power. And he's the one that says, it's time for the wedding, everything is ready. So everything is ready. Everybody come. He sends out servants, but verse 3, people don't want to come to the wedding. Boy, isn't that not a picture of salvation today? God sends out servants. He sends out the Holy Spirit. He sends out the body of Christ. He sends out the prophets and says, let me tell you about Jesus. Yeah, I'm not interested. So God does grace. Verse 4, I'm going to send out more servants. So what's the response? Verse 5, is this not how the world responds when you try to tell them about Christ? They make light of it. They mock you away. They went their own ways. I've had that before. We start telling somebody about the Lord and they just turn around and walk away. They don't even want to deal with it. One to his own farm, another to his business. Oh, my. People are too busy for Jesus right now. They just are. There's too much life going on. Too many hours at work. 
Too many projects at home, too many responsibilities with the kids, too many television shows to watch, fill in the blank. We are just too busy to have a deep, on-fire relationship with Christ. Now go back to the parable of the sower and the seeds. What did Jesus say? They will get choked out by the things of this world. Dawn and I were going through our calendar, trying to get on the same page. There's just so much going on with the kids and with church and with everything going on. And you can see how it's so easy to be so busy and not be busy about bad things. But even the good things take away your depth and your walk with Christ. I'm willing to bet if I come up to you guys today and say, hey, how's life? Oh, it's busy right now. What's busy? Oh, work's busy. Kids, we just got done with this sport. We're starting a new sport. I got this project going on home. They had more hours at work. Just busy. We're getting into the holidays. Busy. Everybody's busy. Dare I say, I think Jesus who walked this earth could have been the busiest man that ever lived. And what did he do? He got up early in the morning and got away from everybody. So much to the point that the disciples said, we can't find you. Can you imagine doing that? Mom, try that tomorrow. Get up. Just leave. So your kids are walking around. We couldn't find you. I'm just doing what Pastor James said. Don't let the busyness of the world control you. Don't. And I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're the personality that you feel fulfilled when other people need you, want you, completely let go of that. Be fulfilled only through Jesus Christ. Do not be fulfilled by your calendar being full, by people wanting a piece of your time. None of that. You are fulfilled by your relationship with Jesus, and just be careful of the busyness. Now, those are the people that we would relate to. They make light of it. They walk away their busyness. Well, look at verse 6. Verse 6 is, to be honest, this is what's happening in the rest of the world. Seized the servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. We don't deal with that here. We deal with people mocking us. We deal with people that you can have three, four, five church services on a Sunday and they still can't find the time to come. You can deal with somebody who can have literally six different translations of their Bible at home, but there's not enough time to crack it open and read it. But in verse 6, other parts of the world, servants are seized, treated spitefully, and killed. What's going to happen? Verse 7, judgment will happen. But that's not the point of the parable. Judgment will come. What is the point of the parable? The wedding is ready. People that were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So the servants went out to the highways, gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Have you looked at how Jesus has described you today? Just for the record, he has told you in verse 32 that you're a tax collector and a harlot, and he's told you now in verse 10 that you're bad. Jesus has an honest assessment of us, does he not? Romans 3, there is no one who does good. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. No, not one. You are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and nothing else. According to the Lord, we are bad harlots and tax collectors that were not worthy to be invited to a wedding, but he still wants us. Is that not amazing? You are still wanted and desired even though you bring nothing to the table. I, I started thinking about teaching this week. And just, I, I've been teaching Bible studies now for 20 years. And I just got some pastors, friends, I just got back from the pastor's conference. And, and I look at what they're going through and just, we were just kind of sharing stuff. Some of the ups and downs they're having, the struggles they're having. And I've been thinking, gosh, I've been teaching for two decades. And I stop and I think, Lord, Why? Why has this been blessed? I'm not worthy of this. Every now and then I have these little catchphrases that I come up with. And I hear someone else repeat it. I think, wow, that's pretty cool. 
then someone will come up to me and say, I, you know, I've been, you, that phrase you said at church on Sunday, you know, I, I've been telling other people, that's pretty neat. And then I'll be driving home and I'll turn on the teaching on the radio. Now here's some pastor on the radio have the audacity to steal my catchphrase. <laughs> he must be listening to the podcasts and getting copies of the CDs. And some of these pastors are worldwide famous and they're listening to my teachings to get catchphrases. And then at that point, the Holy Spirit says, do you really think you came up with that? Because Ecclesiastes says what? There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. So now when there's a point that comes up that I think is really cool and unique, it's just like, okay, Lord, I just got to wait till I hear it from somebody else. Because if I say it, it's not mine. The points here are not mine. It's the Holy Spirit. So you have a very successful ministry at work. You're really representing the Lord. You're really praying for people. You've got a blessed Bible study. Do you think it's you? Because God said you're a harlot tax collector and you're bad. It's through the Holy Spirit. And when you really step back and get that, it's like, wow, Lord, how freeing is this? It's not about me. It's about you. And I just got to be faithful to represent you. I just need to show up on a Sunday morning and be prayed up and take some notes and be ready to go and trust that you're going to just take it from here. Because that's what the goodness of the Lord does. So he goes out and he invites as many as you can find. Verse 9. So they go out to the highways and byways. They grab all these people. And that's the body of Christ, a bunch of rejects. And that's what the Lord does. And that's who he loves. And amen to that. Like I said, we just got back from the pastor's conference a couple weeks ago. And I, I don't know how to say this, and I'm really trying not to make a joke. I don't mean it that way. The pastor's conference we go to, it's over in Hartford City, Indiana. It's about you know two or three hours away. We've been going there for years. And we absolutely love it. But I'm not exaggerating. The weirdest people you've ever seen go there. They are strange. So strange that when Don and I get home, we asked ourselves, what's the weird thing we do that we think is normal? Have you ever had that conversation with your spouse? Because I'm looking at these other people, and they are so weird, and they think they're normal. And I'm thinking, what do you guys think that I do that I think is normal? You're like, boy, James is so weird. So email, text me, or call me this week and let me know what that is. But the point is, the body of Christ is a strange group of people. White collar, blue collar come together. People of different backgrounds, different races, etc. come together. And God just has this mishmash that just comes together. And to God be the glory. And what a beautiful thing that is. So now we get to the last part, though. There's a guy that shows up at the wedding. He doesn't have the right clothes on. He doesn't. See, this is kind of an interesting thing. We can't really relate to this once again. Because the way this wedding happened 2,000 years ago is you never know when the wedding was actually going to happen. You knew there was a betrothal. You knew there was the process. You knew the son was building the house for his bride. You knew it was happening. I mean, you could walk by and see the house getting done. You're thinking, oh, let's get close. Once again, it's a picture of the return of Jesus. We're getting close. But you never knew when. Now, nowadays, you get an invitation for a wedding. And you get an invitation for a wedding that's going to happen in like 2020. People are planning weddings four or five years in advance, it seems like. So you know it's coming. And you show up at the wedding and you're dressed appropriately. You have this or that. Well, back then, 2,000 years ago, you may have been working in the field. The servant shows up and says, hey, today's the wedding. Well, I guess it's time to be done. So you would show up at the wedding because you were asked to become. Now, according to the traditions of 2,000 years ago, you would be given a garment when you would come in to show that you were an invited guest and that you were wanted. This person right here is a little bit of a wedding crasher. They weren't invited. They weren't supposed to be there. Now, what would they wear? Well, a lot of people believe they would wear white. 
Now, why do you think they wear white? Because guess what? You better learn to like the color white. That's what we're wearing in heaven for all of eternity. The Lord makes it clear that we're going to get a new garment in heaven. Revelation 3, it's going to be white. You see it in Revelation 19 when he talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This wedding is a picture of eternity and being united together in Christ and being invited to that wedding and Jesus returning for us. This person comes with the wrong clothes. How many people are going to try to get into heaven with the wrong outfit? They're going to wear their own works, their own garments, their own clothes when we have to be clothed in Jesus Christ. We have to be. And so this man shows up with the wrong outfit on. And the guy says, I can't let you in. How many of us are going to try to get into heaven based on what we wear, what we do? Oh, boy. Isaiah 64 says our works are like filthy rags. Even on our best days, we're unholy. But aren't you thankful? Verse 14, many are called, few are chosen. Many are called. Many are called. You know, Revelation 22 says God is calling you. God says, come. So let's put these three parables together. The first parable that we have right here. Are we willing to be obedient? We're not just going to say it. Are we willing to be obedient? What is the Lord asked you to be obedient this weekend? And you know what it is. Let's be obedient in it. Next parable that we see here going on. Fruit. God expected fruit from his vineyard. Is there fruit in our lives? Lord, am I really living for you or am I living for me? Are you the foundation of my life and do I need to be broken? And then what do we see in the last parable here, verses 1 through 14? You see this idea of who is invited. The bad the non-worthy, and the highways and the byways. Why? Because people were too busy to respond to the invitation. This is a picture of our world. Are we too busy to stop and respond? What controls your life? Is it your work schedule? Is it your bills? Is it the calendar of events? No, it's supposed to be Christ. Let Christ control everything. Matthew six thirty-three. Seek him first in his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Why? Because verse 14, many are called, few are chosen. Worship team, if you can come forward here, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, as we just come to you now.